Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Network Asia. Awareness is the first step to change. And mindfulness is deliberately paying full attention to what is happening around you and within you, in your body, your heart, your mind. And mindfulness is awareness without criticism or judgment. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to because we miss so many things because we fail to pay attention to the smallest details of our lives. You're listening to Project Loving Myself Podcast, a well-being podcast that shares stories of self-love, mental fortitude, and self-discovery. Hosted by life designer and well-being coach, Sanaya Gurnamal. Hi, I'm Sanaya Gurnamal, and this is the Project Loving Myself Podcast. Join me each week as we navigate through aha moments, new ideas, and flashes of insight from candid conversations that inspire you to get started on your own project of loving yourself. Because the most important relationship you will ever have is the relationship that you have with yourself. You matter. This is Project Loving Myself. Hello, everyone. It isn't so often that you come across people who are trailblazers in their own right. These individuals illuminate their own path. They often stray away from the herd. Against all odds, one in a million and born to lead are some of the phrases that come to mind to describe people who have a special purpose or mission in life. They make an impact. They are five steps ahead of the curve. You want to be them. They inspire, they move you, they make you question if you are doing enough with your own lives. And these are the people whom you want to be around, to learn from, because they encourage you to grow and be your best selves. They are often found in roles of teachers or at the helm of a company with a big purpose. They are probably around you if you just look a little further. Their energy is magnetic, inclusive, and comforting. You can't miss them. Our world needs more of these storytellers, dreamers, change makers, and action takers. And today on our episode, we connect with one such individual whose fire burns bright. Katrina Razon is the director of Future Fresh, producer of the Wonderfruit Music Festival, a DJ, an activist, and a yoga instructor. She's also the CEO and founder of investment firm KSR Ventures. Her credentials are impeccable, but it is her passions and advocacies that truly showcases who she is. So let's find out more about this woman who is fondly known as Katsu. Welcome to Project Loving Myself, Katz. 
Thank you so much for having me, Sanaya. It is really my pleasure to have you on this episode. So I'm really looking forward to what comes out of our conversation today. Awesome. So Katz, I was quite surprised to learn that you are a venture capitalist. Tell me how you got into investing and what kind of companies that you typically invest in. Well, Sanaya, it's never been more urgent and important to recognize the fragility of our world. We're losing nature at an unprecedented rate, and we are the first generation to know how our actions directly affect the environment and the last to make things right. And nature isn't something we can choose to care about. It's vital to our very existence and to our future, particularly in the future of children. Our homes, health, food, the air we breathe, and the water we drink simply cannot exist without a harmonious relationship to nature. I started KSR Ventures in 2016. And prior to that, I never even had the trajectory of investing into startups. It was just an accident along my path living in Los Angeles. And that first investment led to a very, very lucky exit. And as I made that first exit, I kept reflecting upon how I can use this vehicle to drive positive impact and change. And a lot of my contemporaries at the time would laugh and say, you know, social enterprises won't give you the returns as uh, consumer tech companies, but I'm not interested in the returns of consumer tech companies, because unfortunately we're living in a modern era where people are more anxious, people are more depressed, and people are more unsatisfied with a lot of the images that they consume on these social media platforms. So I wanted to create this portfolio that would back entrepreneurs who are solving problems in inspiring ways with a particular focus in the Philippines, which is one of the first countries in the world to experience the onslaught of the climate emergency, given that our storms are worsening over the years, the typhoon seasons are becoming more ravenous. And I, I care about my home in the Philippines, and I've seen it um, degrade environmentally for many, many years. And I won't be able to sleep well at night without knowing that I wasn't a participant in finding solutions. So, Kajina, social enterprise and impact investing, I mean, these are kind of, these are, I would say, a lot more popular or a lot more, I would say, supported of today than you know, in 2016. Right. So, and as you said, people were like, it's not going to make you money. It's, it's, you know, they were kind of like wondering what, why you would go into that. So where did your interest in kind of making a difference in social enterprise and in, in making an impact, where did that come from? Like, how did you find yourself even thinking about those things or why did those things actually matter to you, you know, so long ago? Well, Sanaya, I always consider myself as a conservationist first and an investor second. And I spent a lot of time in wild places like Botswana, Tanzania, and various other beautiful countries in Africa, as well as several islands in the Philippines. And having that connection to marine mammals, to 
land mammals is something that you can't put an extrinsic value on. It's purely intrinsic and there's no feeling like experiencing wild animals in their natural habitats. And with poaching on the rise and with uh, our oceans being overfished to the point of no return, I really wanted to do something with KSR Ventures that could not, not just raise awareness on the environmental issues, but also to inspire the love for nature. Because as I was discovering this journey of trying to raise awareness on environmental degradation, especially with wild animals, I realized that you can't bombard people with images of animals being poached in Africa or sharks being fished out of the waters because it it gives them this sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And and eco-anxiety is a real, it's a real, real problem, especially in the youth all over the world. And the only way to inspire people to act is through love. You know, how do you make people love things that are affecting them on a day on a daily basis without them realizing it uh, themselves? How do you inspire people to leave their homes and explore outdoors and get that intrinsic value? In nature. Wow, you know, Katrina, I think my intro was so on point with you because as you're talking, I'm thinking, wow, I'm not doing enough for nature. I'm not doing enough for the animals. Like, look at what she's doing. Look at how passionate she is about it. And, you know, that was so spot on that you really have this ability to kind of inspire somebody else with your words. I also love what you said. You said the only way to inspire people is through love. And I think that is not emphasized enough that the only way we can actually create change is to teach people to love it enough to want to change, you know, to want to make those changes. It's really hard to care about the environment if you don't love the environment. It's very hard to think about animals if you're not really around them, you know, if you don't really spend any time around them. So it's, it's absolutely true that we probably should start looking around us and looking at the world we live in and and maybe respecting and honoring all the different inhabitants of our planet. So I'm really glad you you brought that up. Now you called you called KSR Ventures a net positive driven investment firm. Tell me about that. Well, Sanaya, net positive simply means that you give more back to environmental, social, and and economic causes, then you remove. So that includes the the removal of natural resources, for example. So a lot of the companies that I back will use renewable resources, renewable energy, how to not just create carbon offsets, but how do you capture carbon from the environment? Because what I see now, especially when a lot of companies are trying to move towards more sustainable practices. And I feel like sustainable is a word that has become so overused that it no longer has significant meaning because as you can tell, you must be so careful with which brands and corporations to trust because greenwashing is a real, it's a real practice and it's rampant all around the world. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cats, can you define that for me? Greenwashing. Greenwashing is the practice of marketing sustainable practices. However, the the uh, the carbon footprint of the company or their environmental impact doesn't match that message. So, for example, you have a lot of the big single-use plastic companies claiming that they are uh, they're moving away from single-use plastic. When in actuality, when you look in Indonesia and the Philippines, you see beaches littered with their products. And, and we just have to be so careful with a lot of the messaging going out because what's so great about the youth is their ability to research and to really dig deep. And no one wants to be associated with a company or a brand that doesn't align or share their values. And, and that's what's interesting about social media, right? Like in social media, you, a lot of people call out companies and brands for not being in integrity with what they are, you know, they're marketing or what they're promoting. So it is the, I, I would say it is the generation where the, the millennials are like, okay, we, you know, we, we're not just going to take your word for it. We're actually going to do the research. We're going to, we're going to make sure you can back up your claim. And I love that the power is kind of now with us to say no to what we perhaps have been living with for a very long time. Right. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's in this space, it's so easy to become hopeless and to lose any kind of momentum in raising awareness, especially with the pandemic, people uh, rightfully so were so concerned about their own lives and to, and to survive the, the economic damage that was brought upon uh, by COVID-19 all across the world. And the reason why I'm so passionate about the environment is because we're losing it at such a rapid pace, never seen in history. And it's all man made. I recently produced a documentary called The Last Glaciers about our Earth's dying and disappearing glaciers. And a lot of people, especially in Southeast Asia, will wonder why glaciers? How how do the glaciers affect me if I've never seen a glacier in my life? Well, it's because the glaciers are affecting the storm surges. They're affecting sea levels from rising. And in Antarctica last week, it was 40 degrees hotter than it ever was in wow. recorded history. And that's something to be alarmed by because if we lose the glaciers, then a large portion of the population, and that includes the population in India, Nepal, Peru, Chile, will lose access to clean drinking water. 
So this is a bigger problem than than a lot of people may may realize. And the urgency of the situation and knowing that all could be lost keeps me going. And time is definitely running out. But through activism, I could keep attention to the problems and the causes by speaking out for them. And changing our current environmental course is considered the greatest challenge of our time. But I believe that the collective can change the world through harnessing our imagination and passion and honing in skills of courage, determination, and patience. And we have to remember that if we lose the forests, the oceans, and the glaciers, then we all die. Earth will be fine without us. It's, it's us that really has to be concerned about it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, a couple of years ago, so before the pandemic, um, I went to Montana and I visited um, Glacier National Park. And so you go trekking there and it's a huge park. I don't know if you've been there, but they have some of the biggest like gla- uh, glaciers in the U.S. And there were all these like exhibits of how this is what it used to be 10 years ago. 15 years ago, 25 years ago, and this is where it is now. And you can barely see them. They're so tiny in terms of how much, you know, they they have been melting over time. And of course, it has to do with what we have done to the environment. And, you know, there were images of how majestic, you know, these mountains used to be with the with the glaciers. And now you can barely see any white on top of these mountains, you know? And I was like, I, it was really, really disturbing to see that. And I think that was one of the times I really came face to face with how much of nature is being destroyed by us. But I also do feel like during the pandemic, we saw, you know, we saw blue skies like we haven't seen in a long time. Right. We saw kind of, you know, we saw nature blossoming. We saw animals coming back to the seas, to the oceans and so on. So what is what does that tell you? Like, what was your lesson perhaps, um, cats that you took from, from the COVID pandemic in terms of nature and, um, the world around us that we live in. The pandemic, especially the effects from lockdown and economic, uh, closure and activity in particular with transportation and shipping really showed that if you give nature a break, she will rebound and come back. And that's what I mainly took from it because you saw animals venturing off into cities, birds returning back to Manila that you only see in Palawan. And it just goes to show you that if you give nature a break and if you have protected areas or marine sanctuaries, then the ecosystem will thrive. And, And nature has adapted for millions and millions of years. And if we just slow down our activities, especially with transportation, uh, transportation that uses coal and, and non-renewable energies, then, then nature will find a way to come back. It's really about working with people because you can't work with communities and accomplish conservation. And we've seen this in, in Africa where there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of conflict between wildlife and and human activity as urbanization grows and grows and grows. And without working with communities and without showing them the value that the animals bring to their communities, such as ecotourism, jobs to that local economy or environment, 
then you incentivize the people to look after them. It's a very complex issue, but the main common takeaway is that conservation is impossible without people and planet, and it has to coexist. Absolutely. I totally hear you on that. Now, some of the advocacies that are important to you include um, music and you know, doing music in a way that it is sustainable for the environment. So you were, you were a DJ and then you went on to be the director producer for Wonderfruit, Thailand's premium sustainable lifestyle festival. So tell me a little bit about that. Like, what was that journey? How did you go from being the D, a DJ to actually, you know, doing this festival, which is kind of a big deal. And of course, I'm sure it's um, it's had to change or evolve since the pandemic. So tell us a little bit more about this. Music has and always will be an intrinsic role in my life. I started DJing at 16 purely because I loved the music from the 80s. And I love techno and house music that was coming in from te- from Detroit and Chicago. And from there, I wanted to learn as much about the industry as possible in especially the live events industry. So I took up jobs at the big festivals in the U S when I lived there. And I took up all the jobs that were offered to me, starting from, you know, the very, very bottom of the barrel, accepting jobs that didn't pay cleaning trailers, cleaning bathrooms, cleaning dressing rooms, and then made my way up to work in artist relations, which is called AR. And uh, And that experience was so important in building character. And I wanted to prove to myself that I could learn everything about a live event or a festival, a big scale event, like a music festival from every single corner of it. And it was really humbling to work really hard in in very, very challenging jobs and environments because you're dealing with so many big egos at the same time. But It really, uh, it really was a, it's a huge humbling experience for me. And I didn't care what all my peers in the Philippines were, were saying, like, why is she working hard labor jobs at these festivals? But it was an environment that I really thrived in at the time because I was just learning so much about the inner workings of a live event and especially in the U.S. But they, it also taught me that once guests would leave a festival site and a lot of the events that I worked at were all held outdoors, big fields, uh, beautiful uh, areas around the United States, including national parks. But people would leave the festival in a sea of plastic where you could see more single use cups, utensils and other discarded garbage on the floor that you couldn't even see the grass anymore. And just seeing that image every night as I was working really late hours was just harrowing. It was disturbing to to understand the carbon footprint of a single music festival. And that includes the flights, that includes the amount of power that's used to power up a big festival stage. And it's a lot that, and many people may not realize it when they're there because they're enjoying this visceral and raw experience of live music. But that's, that was what mainly led me into the path of, of Wonderfruit. And my partners and I at Wonderfruit wanted to create a carbon neutral festival where we would be able to capture and offset 
the carbon from our guests and the artists flying in and from the guest speakers, because it's not just a music festival, it's an art festival, it's a wellness festival, it's a food festival. And we wanted to really create a circular experience. Our All of our water is captured and filtered on site from a lake that's in the festival site. We compost all the food and all of our waste. And we were the first festival in the world to ban single-use plastics. And that was a great ex- experiment at the time because a lot of people think, you know, the consumers aren't going to be able to bring their own cups. They're not going to want to deal with carrying their own cup. But to our surprise, people love the idea of bringing their own cup and washing it uh, after they would refill it with drinks uh, from water to juices to teas. And it just showed us that if you gave, if you empowered your guests to make that choice, they will embrace it. And what happens is it creates a network effect where they will demand that kind of change in all the events that they go to, whether it's a music festival or a concert, that to bring your own cup is, is a big, big, big statement. And it saves a lot. It saves a lot from waste. It saves a lot from, of plastic going into landfills. And you also empower people to make their choices and to be an ambassador to Wonderfruit and talk about how, how these little choices make, they do make a big, big difference. And they feel as if they're participating in a movement, which is, which is really wonderful. One of my favorite texts in yoga is the Kata Upanishad. And, and uh, uh, my favorite quote from it is, you are what your deep driving desire is. And that is totally reflected in our guests and the artists of Wonderfruit who really share this mission to, to create a more responsible and accountable event space. So, you know, a couple of years ago, I came across um, the Wonderfruit website and uh, I was reading through it. It's, it's a beautiful website, by the way. And Thank I remember you. just being like, wow, this is just this looks like such an amazing event. I wanted to be there. So tell me a little bit more about the festival itself. You know, what are the kinds of things that happen and what have you done since the pandemic or where do you go from here considering, you know, I mean, I know we're kind of at what looks like the end of the pandemic, but um, of course our behavior has changed over time and things are definitely more in a kind of hybrid format. So what have you done with Wonderfruit? And also tell us a little bit about the event itself. So during the pandemic, it really forced us to buckle down and stay as creative as possible. So we started a food festival that started off online first called Fruitful, which teamed up with a lot of the local chefs in Thailand where people would book a 10-course dinner and we would deliver the food, but in, in really nice plating that they could either keep or they could return to us. And so that, that avoided the problem of, you know, takeaways in, in plastic containers and whatnot. And we also provided entertainment for them through Zoom. And you would have dinner through Zoom, through this virtual experience where you get to see uh, Michelin-starred chefs talk about the process of making the food and how they're using ingredients from local farms in Thailand and how they're really working their menus to support a more, a more regenerative uh, menu, if you will. And uh, what we love about Wonderfruit is, and why we're, we're so proud of 
creating a festival like this was, especially with my time working in the U.S. and working in all every single major music festival out there was the inclusivity because you look at a lineup in these big music festivals in the U.S. and you wonder to yourself, where are the women and where are the the Southeast Asian or South Asian artists. There's, there's absolutely no representation of the talent of the region. And, and the region is a, it's a huge continent with such different cultures that we felt weren't being represented in, in the West. Um, And what we got was a whitewashed version of what music and what wellness should look like. And And that's why it was so important to us to hold the event in Thailand and to really focus on all of the amazing teachers, the artists, the architects, the musicians, the DJs, producers in this festival. And we we wanted to make Wonderfruit a family-friendly event so that parents who do want to go and and have a good time can bring their children and have their children create these authentic connections to other kids around the region and to also have this opportunity of play because play isn't just solely for children as adults we lose this we lose this this homeostatic drive to play we become very serious we become very stressed out in our daily lives so we forget that play is so important for our brains it's so important for our health and it's really this opportunity to play and get down into the roots and this raw nature of having fun without the fear of judgment. Wow. You know, I, first of all, would have loved to be in Thailand when you were doing Fruitful. Okay. And (laughs) this festival, I mean, wow, everything just sounds so, so much larger than life, um, which is really great that there are people like you who are really, you know, putting that time and effort into creating or curating experiences for people that maybe take us out of what is the mundane or the norm of life, that there are different ways to live our lives. There are different ways to enjoy um, our lives and to, to care about things around us that matter. Now, yeah, Gina, I want to talk a little bit about your self-discovery journey. I know you are um, a yoga instructor, you are a meditator, and you know there's been lots that I've read on the kind of um, beliefs and thoughts you have about well-being and about sort of self-discovery. So let's talk a little bit about that. And I want to start with by quoting you. You said, we don't conquer mountains we are humbled by them. So tell me a little bit about the experiences in your life that you set out to conquer, but it actually ended up being like a journey of self-discovery. Tell me some, some, something about, you know, your experiences with that. So for many years from, uh, I would say from high school to college, I struggled with an eating disorder, specifically uh, bulimia, which is a mental illness that has physical symptoms. And Struggling does not mean that you're losing. It means that you're fighting every day. Recovery is not defined by your mistakes, as I've learned. It is defined by your choice to fail and get back up again and try again. I learned through this experience that when you are forcing your body to be smaller than it should, then you live a life that is less than two. What I've also learned is that that was just is a that, really powerful statement. 
I want to take a moment. I want to take a moment on that. That was a really powerful statement. When you force yourself to be smaller than you should, then you live a life that is lesser than. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that you learn when you are experiencing something as, as, as debilitating as an eating disorder. And I think it's up to, I have the responsibility to be completely honest and transparent with people. And a lot of women and a lot of boys are experiencing eating disorders at an alarming rate around the world. And the reason why they don't speak up about it is because they feel too shamed. They feel alone. They feel isolated in their journey when this is actually a mental illness that has physical consequences as a result. And, and many people who struggle with bulimia will describe it as not wanting to achieve a certain shape or weight, but rather as a means of control. It's a controlling of anxiety. And we somehow convince ourselves that we are undeserving of love and that our weight is the only thing that we can control. And, and what I've learned is that love is not at the end of the path paved with self-hatred and shame. And adventure, friendship, and acceptance aren't at the end of the path paved with isolation, restriction, abuse, and pain. And I used to feel so much shame, but as the saying goes, when you recover from something like an eating disorder, that I am not what happened to me, I am what I choose to become. I am not what happened to me, I am what I choose to become. Wow. That's a really, that's another really powerful statement. I love all these, you know, these one, two liners you're giving us, Katrina, because it really just drives the point home. And um, so I've worked with bulimia with my clients before. And so it's a cycle, of course, of the eating and the purging. And of course, also the sense of control, like you're controlling your weight and so on. Um Tell me, how did you get out of this? Because one thing I notice with people who have eating disorders is it kind of just like creeps up on them. Like you don't know that you have an eating disorder until it's already painfully obvious. But like on on route to getting there, you're already kind of, you know, in that space of um, that the disorder is already playing out, but you don't notice it. Like you don't actually realize or even recognize that you have an eating disorder until it gets really bad. And it starts with, you know, the dieting or the not eating or the cutting calories and everybody has their own method or the fasting, but then it just kind of snowballs and it gets out of control. So I want to know a little bit more about that because I think that's something that a lot of women are dealing with. It's not something they talk about. It's because it's not something they want to admit to themselves that they have an eating disorder. They think it's just normal, right? This is kind of mm. like the current consciousness of being, you know, concerned about your weight and, and dressing and looking a certain way, but we don't realize when it becomes really unhealthy. So can you talk to us a little bit about that experience and then how you kind of pulled, your, pulled yourself out of all of it? Yeah, it's it's very interesting that you say that, Sanaya. And I really appreciate your work and what you do with your podcast and and giving more attention to these issues that are affecting so many people, especially in the culture in Asia, where there's an even more apparent pressure to look perfect, even though perfection is is an illusion. 
I think that we get so caught up in this vicious cycle of trying to present ourselves in society, this image of everything's all good. But when you study, when you study the, the goddesses and the gods of, of yoga, you understand that we're not supposed to live this life of perfection, that life is, is all about the ups and downs, but how you react to it is, is what's going to set your course in swimming through the rough waters of life. And what I did was I started to really understand what my triggers were. And from there, I started learning how to meditate and learning pranayama the breath awareness and during my studies of of neuroscience this was many years after i had recovered from it but i didn't realize how the pranayama and meditation really helped me out out of this because as i was studying the brain and studying the context of bulimia in the brain what happens to brains with women who struggle with bulimia and anorexia are are very different, but it's still a chemical reaction of dopamine, of neurotransmitters, and what's occurring. And by regulating my breath during pranayama practices, by cultivating this intimacy with my breath and with my thoughts in meditation, it helped me see my habits, my triggers, and my responses to these triggers in a very, very grounding way. And that really helped me besides just talking about it to my friends and to, and to therapists. It, it really, I think it provided me with this, this guidance to physically remove myself out of it because it's not an easy, it's not an easy disorder to pull away from it's it's constantly having to to reevaluate yourself and even though i do sometimes feel those triggers come up i know not to react to them because i am able to remove myself from those situations where even though i am facing or, or confronting my triggers head on i just bring it back to the breath you know i really like that you mentioned about dopamine because um a lot of people who are starving themselves or they even have an, a, an eating disorder that, you know, um, that, that can be identified, it ends up affecting their hormones. And as you mentioned, it's a dopamine issue as well. It's probably a dopamine imbalance. And dopamine is sort of the hormone that our body releases as a reward for like, that makes us eat food or have sex. And so I can totally understand. I totally get it. As you say that, you know, bulimia, anorexia, nervosa, I mean, these are all affecting and connected to our dopamine levels and also all the other hormone levels in our body. And eventually that leads to infertility issues. It leads to mental health issues because our hormones are connected to all these other things. And a lot of women sort of women specific diseases are connected back to our hormones. So as people are not responsible with their body, with nurturing and nourishing their body as they should, it ends up leading to all these diseases that have become quite normal. Um, infertility, for example, is very normal today. And 
I do believe it has a lot to do with how we're eating. It's also emotional, but it definitely has, you know, there's this huge component of what we are eating and what we are not eating. And and I love that we're kind of also spotlighting that and we're letting, you know, whoever's listening in, you know, maybe they're thinking a little bit more about the consequences of what they're doing to their body. And like you said, you know, bulimia, anorexia, these are, these are actual mental health diseases. You know, these are, these aren't like, oh, we're just not going to eat or we're just choosing to purge. Like it's actually gotten to a point where it cannot be controlled. You know, it is out of your control. You really need help. And you're yes. talking about the triggers. You're talking about pranayam. You're talking about meditation and yoga. So these are the things that supported you in your journey to become more responsible, more aware, and, and to feel much more maybe in, in harmony with your own body. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's so wonderful to hear that story from someone who's actually gone through that. Okay. And it must be so encouraging to everyone listening in. Yeah. I hope, I, I do hope that people feel less ashamed to discuss their experiences because you never know because you could be helping someone who's struggling right now and you, you could help them feel less alone about their journey and you can give them hope. I mean, anorexia nervosa is the, is the mental illness that kills the most people every year. It's the number one uh, mental illness that absolutely just wrecks havoc on so many people's lives every single year. And, and just being able to also understand that whatever is going on with the, with us physically is what's driving emotions. Because when, when we approach health, there's, there's so many, like, you see so many voices talking, talking and debating that, you know, it's your emotions that drive your, your health, but really it's, you have to pay attention with what's going on physically, because if you're not sleeping right, if you're not getting enough nutrition, if you're not drinking enough water, if you're not, again, getting that quality sleep every night, that is going to come up as emotions and your brain is already building these experiences, these emotions from previous experiences. Um, as they say, your brain is a, is a time machine. So all of these emotions are really a physical manifestation of what is happening to you physically. Absolutely. And you know, Cats, as you were talking, it reminded me of a quote. I've probably posted this in, you know, Project Loving Myself before I've said it, but it just, it's so fitting for our conversation right now. So your story could be the key that unlocks someone else's prison. Don't be afraid mm. to share it. Okay. So I really I recognize that. you. I recognize you, you know, for what you're sharing on, on today's episode. And, I, and it's not just today. I know you're someone who's been quite vocal of things that you think, things that are personal to you that you think could benefit others. And so I, I do want to sort of highlight that, recognize that. And thank you for that. Okay. Thank you, Sanaya. Well, tell me a little bit now, Katz, about yoga yoga and meditation. Tell me about your practices now. How did you become a yoga instructor? What kind of motivated you? I never, just like with investing, I had never imagined myself becoming a yoga facilitator or teacher. 
never, ever expected it. But during lockdown, when we couldn't go out, I decided to go in and really dive into the philosophy of yoga because I felt like the pandemic was such a low point in in my life. I had just finished producing Wonder Fruit. I had just returned from climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and suddenly the world was completely shut down. And I wanted to make good use of my time now that I wasn't so busy with producing events or spending really late nights out. And so I really got into the practice of, of yoga, of meditation, deepening my understanding of pranayama. And for me, yoga is connection. And it is a spiritual practice from India, which we always have to acknowledge as practitioners and as teachers. And it's so much more than the physical poses. There's pranayama, there's meditation, asana, which is the physical poses, philosophy, mantra, and how we bring forth compassion and empathy to our community and to nature. And it's about learning how to stop talking and start listening. And yoga provides us with the tools to swim through the rough waters of life, all towards the path of samadhi and of sattva. Now, what's really interesting about this journey of what I call unbounded consciousness is that self-mastery truly begins with knowing the self and how we interact with the world, how we respond to situations around us. And yoga is designed to give us this unique insight. And we have the chance to steer the vehicle of the mind to a more conscious direction. And that is one of the purposes of yoga. But one of the things that is very, very disturbing to me is that so many people around the world have a completely different image of what yoga is because of how it's presented on social media and how the West has packaged, produced, and manufactured yoga to consumers. And I think that is a very harmful thing, especially when you think about how little South Asian teachers receive to the global response to it. And even if you just type the hashtag yoga on Instagram, you see hundreds of photos of white, thin, bodied individuals, and you hardly see any South Asian teachers who are sitting in meditation. It's all in the extreme ranges of poses that border on the line of contortionism and hypermobility you know, glorifying these extreme ranges of motion when we have to understand that the general population can't reach that range of motion. And we all have different and unique bodies that we need to work with um, because everyone has personal experiences. Everyone has different physiologies that we have to be able to adjust the practice to fit that person, not that person to fit the practice. And there is this big conversation about cultural appropriation in, in yoga as a result of the whitewashed capitalistic image that has been produced by the West. 
yeah as as someone who's from india uh originally i i yeah you know i'm seeing it from both sides i totally get it um i totally understand what you're saying and personally i've done yoga at many different points of my life and i have never quite related to it the way i relate to it now um especially because my practice of yoga has nothing to do with the instructor or what I'm doing, um, but in, entirely with what is happening inside of me as I do yoga. So, you know, it, it took me time to really understand yoga is my very personal experience with it and not what was happening in the class or with the instructor or, you know, you know, whatever was happening on the outside. And I think that takes right. time to get to, you know, it's not something that everybody else is paying attention to or experiencing. Um, and, and it's at least you've got all these people doing yoga who may not understand mm -hmm. yoga for what it is, but okay, it's a start. It's a start because right. I, I was there too, where I didn't quite understand my entire heritage. Um, and, and now I do, and it's an entirely different experience. Um, so I do relate to what you're saying. Right. That's why it's so the home practice is something that should be so sacred to everyone because you're not in the pressure of having to perform a certain way in a studio setting. And I certainly first learned asana in the studio setting in the u.s and i didn't want to go back to it because i just felt like it was so competitive the teacher didn't cue in a savasana at the end of class there was no opening meditation it was all very 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 physically driven where yoga is about self-inquiry it's about how you can cultivate and question and bring that self-inquiry that swadhyaya into your practice on and off the mat. And that's why creating these little rituals for ourselves at home are so important in maintaining a really, really enlightened and joyful experience in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. What is, what has yoga done for you? Katrina, since the pandemic, you know, this is something that you have really taken to heart. What have you seen in your life that is different? Um, how does yoga sort of influence your life and direct it? Well, because of my lifestyle of DJing and producing events, I never realized how my sleep was suffering as a result of all that. My, my life prior to the pandemic was very, very rajasic, meaning that it was just all go, go, go. But then after planning for events and concerts and festivals, I would always feel depleted at the very end. And in neurology, there is this principle called the reward prediction error in which if you, if you use more dopamine along the pursuit before reaching a goal, then you encounter a depletion event at the very end, once that goal is achieved. And I never realized how burnt out I was from doing all of these events because I never celebrated the little wins of progress. And what I've learned through yoga and especially through meditation is, is to be able to 
observe without reacting. And it's this process that's not easy for so many people. People find meditation extremely difficult. And I completely understand why. It is a very challenging experience to be able to sit down with your thoughts and with your breath. But it also is this this practice. And if you look at it as this this practice of developing and cultivating intimacy with your own life and to cultivate intimacy with your breath. And at the end of the day, clarity is the essence of wisdom. And by learning how to meditate, by observing your thought patterns, observing how you would react in a situation without reacting to it directly is it just removes this huge weight on your shoulders. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I can totally identify with that too, because I think that is something that I... I really spent time working at was to get to a point where there's no need to react because you're, you're very sure of where you're at. Um, and I do see that that is a challenge for a lot of people. And it's, it's something that's ongoing, right? It's something you have to keep kind of being mindful of, of being aware of. And it, it has a lot to do with questioning how you feel about something or why you're reacting or why your body is behaving a certain way. Um, and I do, I do see how yoga and meditation are are two things that really, really can help a person to achieve that. Absolutely. I also believe that it is a practice that allows you to accept the things that you can't control. And especially in the pandemic during lockdown, when you feel frustrated by the way the government and institutions have handled their response in the pandemic and all these decisions that were that were made that ended up hurting people more than, than helping them. And this collective grief, because even if, even if we are so lucky and privileged to be under a roof, we all have to remember that we live in this situation and millions of other people are suffering so much more than you. And to be able to hone in on the power of meditation to, and even when you feel helpless, and I'm sure that you've seen this a lot with the clients that you work with and that you've helped, is that really the best way to counter any kind of personal sadness or sorrow is to help other people who are in need whether that's a small, a small gesture, but to help people, you know, I, when, when I, when I have friends who really dealt with terrible depression during the lockdown, telling them to 
extend their helping hand to an elderly in need or or someone to offer to watch their kids while they while they're working at home just to give that parent a break from educating their child and having to entertain their child 24/7 is is very powerful and it's something that has to be practiced on on a daily basis especially when you feel yeah. helpless or helpless when you can be of use to someone then it actually increases your self-esteem and that together with gratitude i found those two things in combination can really lift us out of our little dark place right and the funny thing about gratitude sanaya and a lot of the big like the wellness the wellness industry love to market these gratitude journals but if you look at the if you look at the neuroscience and the research literature that's coming out on gratitude practice and gratitude is a, such a powerful tool and it's such a powerful practice to yeah. hone in every day. But what's missing about that gratitude practice is that we keep thinking gratitude is to extend that thanks yeah. to someone else. But the problem is, is that we don't know how to accept gratitude when it's expressed yeah. towards us. And that is when the powerful practice begins is that the gratitude practice is only truly tra transformative if we are able to accept that gratitude. That's a really great perspective um, that I, I was not very aware or familiar. So thank you for sharing that. Wow. I'm getting a lot out of this conversation, cats. It's great. Okay. So last <laughs> question that I have for you, what are the other practices that you do perhaps for self-love for mental health and well-being we've got the yoga and the meditation and some of the other practices you talked about in terms of self-discovery your advocacies and so on but what else do you do cats that you can share with our listeners for your mental health for your well-being we have to remember that just because you're not sick doesn't mean that you're healthy and Looking at health from a biopsychosocial perspective, what's hap what is the environment that this person's living in? What are the how are this person's interpersonal relationships? Are they in flourishing friendships or are, are they in an abusive relationship or an abusive partnership? How much sleep is this person getting on a daily basis? Are they reading, are they eating enough nutrition? These are all so important in understanding our umbrella of health and it's something that we must recognize as teachers and as partners and as friends is that health isn't all just about whether you're sick or not whether you've experienced COVID-19 or not it's really not about that you could be the most physically fit triathlete but still have a miserable life at home and uh, I think that learning about that perspective really makes me understand that I need to be able to play on a daily basis because play is homeostatic in our nature. We, and it is the, the portal into plasticity, into neuroplasticity, uh, your, your brain's ability to rewire and change in response to experience. So I do a lot of handstands uh, outside of my yoga practice. I love being able to learn these new skills and techniques. I sign up for, for teacher trainings in uh, reading the text, the, the Vedic texts or the Upanishads. I sign up for 
lectures around the world, just learning about the subtle practices of, of yoga that I may, I may never have had the opportunity to do in person, which is why the internet's so great because I can listen to um, a teacher from Hong Kong singing the Hanuman Kalisa and be a part of that experience still and still learn um, from my peers there. And uh, one thing to all also note about learning something new is that in our culture, we are programmed and convinced to believe that the brain stops developing after the first five years of our lives. And although the first five year lives are critical for development, critical for learning languages and children, our brains keep on changing. It is our only organ that can rewire and change in response to experience. And I've been reading a lot of research studies about how learning is the key to longevity because when you ask 90-year-olds who aren't depressed or sad compared to people from my generation who are visibly more anxious than they are, they'll tell you that the reason what keeps them motivated every day is learning a new language, learning a new uh, subject, uh, signing up for an online course. I've, I've spoken to people in their 80s that that look much younger than their age because they're constantly learning and constantly challenging yeah. themselves. And when you look at and when you look at longevity studies, it all comes back into learning. How are we challenging ourselves on on a day to day basis? And change lies not in the palms of our hands, but rather it lies in the plasticity of our brain. And neuroplasticity is the nervous system's response to experience the ability to change yeah, the I agree. experience. And so learning, yeah, learning, playing, um, is really how I, I, I stay content and, and joyful and also being able to laugh and, and approach things in life with humor, with friends and family is, is so, so important to be able to have a sense of humor. Yeah, I, I think that's so great what you said. You know, just learning something new goes really so far in keeping us young and keeping us excited and motivated and passionate, um, passionate about something. And really that too is, it's sort of having the hormones that secrete in our brain because we're learning something new. And that creates a lot of like the good hormones, the feel good hormones in our body. Cause you are excited about something. You're learning something new. Your neurons are firing in your brain. You're making new connections. And so really that learning is something that happens in the brain, but it also kind of spreads to the entire body because your entire body has a positive effect as a result of what's happening in the neurons in the brain. So absolutely. Right, because, um, because neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Katrina, this has been a great episode. I've really enjoyed all the different subjects and topics we've talked about. I think that, you know, if I learned quite a bit, I'm sure our listeners got so much out of it. So before we end, I'd like to request your Project Loving Myself mantra that you would like to share with our listeners. Anything that you say to yourself um, that's kind of like your mantra for self-love or sort of 
something that keeps you, keeps you going, um, what would that be? Awareness is the first step to change. And mindfulness is deliberately paying full attention to what is happening around you and within you, in your body, your heart, your mind. And mindfulness is awareness without criticism or judgment. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to because we miss so many things because we fail to pay attention to the smallest details of our lives. Wow. And with those words, thank you, Katz, for your energy, for your wisdom, and for all that you have shared on today's episode. May I ask you to share your details with our listeners if they want to get in touch or if they want to, you know, do some some classes if you're teaching, do let us know. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Sanaya. And thank you for producing a beautiful podcast that allows people to be vulnerable and to feel safe and to really dive deeper into these topics with nuanced details and whatnot. I'm really, really, really happy to have been on here. Thank you so much. Do you want to share your details on Instagram? Sure. People can follow me at Katrina Razan. And I do share free yoga classes on my YouTube page, which is Katrina Razan Yoga. There are pranayam, guided meditations, mantra, as well as asana classes there that I release on a week weekly basis. So check that out, subscribe and there is a practice for every single person on that channel. So I hope you enjoy and I hope that I could support you along your journey. What a beautiful conversation that was with Katrina. Tag your thoughts on this episode on at Project Loving Myself podcast and at Sanaya Gurnamal. And do subscribe to this podcast if you like these episodes. Write in share your thoughts with me. Tell me more about how you felt with this episode and any of the other episodes that you're listening to. If you missed any of our episodes, please do go back and listen in on anything that you might have missed. I say goodbye today with this quote. People who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. As said by the notorious change maker himself, Steve Jobs. Every time you make a choice, you are changing your future. But when you get into the habit of creating waves and ripples of change, you impact yourself and also others. You become that force of nature. And each of us has that potential and ability. You have the ability to be the change that you want to see in this world. Another favorite quote of mine by Mahatma Gandhi. I think I'm all quotes today. With that, thank you for joining me this week on Project Loving Myself, brought to you by Podcast Network Asia and powered by Podmetrics. You are loved. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. 
Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.